Welcome to Ufahamu Africa, a podcast about life and politics on the African continent. I'm Kim Dion, one of your hosts, and I'm joined by my new co-host and collaborator, Rachel Beatty-Riedel, a professor of political science and the director of the Program on African Studies at Northwestern University. Welcome to Ufahamu Africa, Rachel. Thanks, Kim. I'm very excited for this new partnership with Ufahama Africa and in collaboration with Northwestern University's Program of African Studies. And this week's relaunch begins the newest season, season three. Yeah, I'm really excited to be back on the air. And in fact, for this week's episode for the opener of season three, we're going to feature a conversation with ethnomusicologist Jennifer Kiker, who actually is a pretty great Mbira player as well. So we'll be hearing her music on the episode. But before that, we've decided with this reboot of Ufahamu Africa that we were going to bring back the co-host conversation about what we're reading and learning from the continent. So Rachel, is there anything that you've read or that you want to share with our listeners? Absolutely. I wanted to take this first episode as an opportunity to cover some of the bigger trends that have been occurring across the continent. So throughout 2018, we've observed a large number of elections, from parliamentary elections in Djibouti and Rwanda, to Sierra Leonean general elections, presidential elections in Egypt, Cameroon, Mali, and Zimbabwe, Seo Tome's legislative elections, and Tunisian and Gambian local elections. And we're still gearing up for Mauritania's and Mali's parliamentary elections, and Guinea-Bissau's legislative elections in November. And these elections have had dramatically varied outcomes and shifts of power at different levels of the system. So for example, in Gambia's April local government elections, the ex-president's party came in a distant third behind two new challengers, the United Democratic Party and the Gambia Democratic Congress. And sitting presidents in Mali and Zimbabwe survived very close and highly contested challenges from opposition candidates. And Cameroonian President Paul Bia maintained his presidency with an overwhelming 71% amid a context of regional and linguistic conflict in the country. So these elections certainly offer unequal opportunities for challenging the incumbent across countries, but ruling parties, opposition forces, and citizens alike are really reckoning with diverse strategies for getting and maintaining political power. Well, and it's really important that you bring all this up, Rachel. And I think one great thing about being back on the air is that, you know, maybe we'll have a chance to talk to some experts who have been following elections in some of these countries. Just kind of on that note, while there hasn't been a recent election in Ethiopia this year, there has been some really exciting news coming out of the Horn of Africa since our last broadcast. And I hope that we'll have a chance to talk to a specialist, perhaps even Boston University political scientist, Mike Woldemariam, whose book just came out earlier this year. But for now, I do want to highlight the changes that have led to more women in leadership in Ethiopia. So in uh, late October, so just last month, Ethiopia's parliament appointed its first ever female president, Salwark Zude, and her appointment came just after a cabinet reshuffle, right? All the ministers in cabinet in, in Ethiopia after um, Ethiopia's Prime Minister Abe Ahmed had actually reduced the size of cabinet, meaning he reduced the number of ministerial positions. And when he made appointments to this new reduced size cabinet, he made sure that women made up half of that cabinet. So obviously it's too early to tell, you know, whether this is going to have a difference. But of course, a lot of the political science research suggests, right, that having many more women in power like this are, are, are going to lead to substantive changes. So we'll have to, we'll have to keep, keep a lookout for that. Absolutely. That'll be another great topic for us to explore related to all of the changing gender dynamics in terms of appointments and, and political candidates. Another major trend that I, I wanted to cover relates to the question of migration. 
both across and beyond the continent. Over the summer, the United Nations Conference on Trade and Development released its recent Economic Development in Africa report, mm-hmm. which documents African migration trends and highlights the economic impact of migrants and their potential for augmenting growth. And the African Development Bank also released its annual development effectiveness review, which included an analysis of migration as well. And both reports actually had a similar conclusion in which the key takeaway is that the majority of African migration is within Africa, usually to neighboring countries. Therefore, when we're really thinking about the ways in which it's becoming more and more difficult to cross borders, that has a lot of economic impact, generally negative as it becomes more stringent for domestic um, GDP and productivity and, and labor flexibility. And so at the Compact for Africa Summit this week, hosted by Chancellor Merkel in Berlin, which brought together over 12 heads of state, the International Organ- Organization for Migration released a report that showed that there are over 16 million migrants on the move within Africa, whereas at least in 2018, only 119,000 arrived in Europe which is obviously a dramatically different percentage. Right. And it, it, I mean, it's important to remember that. And I think, you know, there's a lot of great work out there that can remind us of that. One last thing I do want to bring up in this week's news wrap is some good news out of South Africa. So last week, Tito Mboweni, who is the Minister of Finance in South Africa, announced that the government would stop charging a 15% value-added tax, or VAT, on menstrual products. This change was announced with the announcement of the new budget, and it's important because it's coming after students, academics, and even women in parliament have been advocating for abolishing VAT on menstrual products, right? And in fact, there was this whole student movement earlier in October that had created a hashtag, Because We Bleed, and they even organized a march in Johannesburg to bring attention to their cause. I think it's just important for us to remember that with everything that's going on in the world, that students can come together and collectively act, and and it can lead to policies and potentially even in government. So I'm really excited about what I'm seeing, especially with the sustainability of student movements in South Africa over, over these last decades. Absolutely. And we look across our campuses and the work that academics are doing and looking at these changes about the number of women in parliament and there are a lot of a lot of factors that can hopefully give us more inspiration. Well, that's all the news we have for this week. On Monday morning, we'll post links to what we've mentioned in this episode as well as bonus links to our website, ufahamuafrica.com. Today's feature conversation is with Jennifer Kiker, an associate professor of music and of ethnomusicology at the University of Rochester. In high school, Kiker began playing the mbira, the instrument you hear featured in the music for this week's episode. She earned her PhD from the University of Pennsylvania and her BA from Mount Holyoke. She is the author of a book on popular music in post-colonial Zimbabwe titled Oliver Mtakudzi, Living Tuku Music in Zimbabwe, which was published by Indiana University Press. Listen to my conversation with her recorded earlier this year. Welcome to the podcast, Jennifer. Thanks so much for joining us. Of course. Thank you. So I'd like to start with a few questions about your research on the mbira, a musical instrument heard in this episode's introduction that typically consists of a wooden board and metal tines. 
played using the thumbs and an index finger. I wanted to know, how did you first become acquainted with the Embera and what led you to ultimately do research on Embera playing? Well, I'll start by saying that there are many different kinds of Embera from mm -hmm. across the African continent. The Zimbabwean Embera that I play is called the Embera Zabadzimu, which means Embera of the Ancestral Spirits. I first encountered the Embira as a teenager mm -hmm. growing up in Eugene, Oregon. As it happens, a Zimbabwean musician named Dumisani Maraire came to the University of Washington in Seattle first to teach and later to pursue a PhD in ethnomusicology. So his family became established in the Pacific Northwest mm -hmm. and his children were born in Seattle. His wife later moved to Portland, Oregon, mm -hmm. where I encountered her as a 12-year-old. When I was 12, I started playing Embira and also studying the associated vocal styles that accompany Embira performance. At the time, there were not very many people who were proficient enough on Embira to teach, with the exception of a few people in Seattle mm -hmm. and in the Bay Area, both of which were several hours away right. from me from, yeah. in Eugene, Oregon. So I actually traveled to Zimbabwe to study Mbira music as a teenager. I took a semester off of high school mm -hmm. and lived in Harare with a family of Mbira players, dancers, and spirit mediums, mm -hmm. where I was very immersed in the sort of social life of the Mbira, right? So there's the musical sound of the Embira, mm -hmm. and then there's its social context. In 2014, you published an article titled Learning in Secret, Entanglements Between Gender and Age in Women's Experience with the Zimbabwean Embira Zavadzimu. So your article builds on earlier research about the gendered experiences of Embira and Embira Zavadzimu in particular, namely that there exist these structural barriers to women's participation. And in Learning in Secret, you make a strong case for how these barriers and overcoming them are not just gendered, but also aged, right? So drawing on interviews with four female Embira players, you show that learning in secret is not just something women have done, but also what children, both girls and boys, have done because they lack seniority. And one thing that really struck with me in that piece was that you wrote about how the stories you collected suggest that the number of women playing Embira might actually be higher than previously reported. And I wondered if you knew of additional work that's been done to collect more oral histories since the publication of your article. And, you know, is there someone who's collecting a history of women Embira players in Zimbabwe? The standard narrative is that women didn't used to play Embira mm. and that this is a 20th century thing mm. for women to start getting involved in an instrument that previously was reserved exclusively for men. Right. There are some rules mm -hmm. governing um, women's participation in Embira music, and a lot of those have to do with certain taboos that spirit mediums follow. Mm. The largest taboo is a taboo against spirit mediums seeing blood mm. or the color red mm -hmm. because of its symbolic associations with war, violence, and death. Mm -hmm. right. So... Right away, women are constrained in certain ways because mm -hmm. of menstruation. Mm -hmm. And if a menstruating woman goes to a ceremony or even touches an embira that is dedicated to an ancestral spirit, that is a form of um, Shona people would say kungora or defiling defilement. Right. 
So this has been posited as the reason why women were historically barred from playing the embira mm -hmm. out of a fear of um, the breaking of those blood taboos. Right. So my question going into this research was how do women navigate these constraints? Mm -hmm. And what I found was a really fascinating story that the constraints are not only on women. Right. So once we take something like a blood taboo and then we start thinking exclusively about how it applies to women, we miss other sides of this story. Men are also constrained by this restriction and similar restriction. A man who has gotten in a fight or who has killed someone or who has recently had sexual relations is also not allowed in a ceremony or mm. allowed to play the ambira. Mm -hmm. So part of what I'm trying to do in this larger project on women ambira players is to say, ritual restrictions don't only constrain women. Right. They constrain women and men, mm -hmm. at, but those constraints operate differently in gendered ways. The other thing I find really fascinating is that women have all kinds of ways of navigating these constraints. Right that don't immediately emerge in literature that just portrays what the constraints are. Yeah. So for example, the restriction against women who are menstruating touching an instrument that is dedicated to an ancestral spirit is pretty easy to navigate. You just have another imbira yeah. that isn't dedicated to an ancestral spirit and right. that you're free to play at any time. Yeah. Right. So women have found all kinds of ways to uh, maintain those restrictions, mm -hmm. but also not let them impede their own participation in right. ritual life. There's an important distinction between commercial music industry Mbira and Mbira Zavadzimu, and I wonder to what extent the emergence of women Mbira players in the commercial music industry, people like Stella Chiweshe, if they had an impact on popular attitudes toward women playing Mbira Zavadzimu. For most people who play the Imbira Zavadzimu, mm -hmm. there is a lot of crossover between different contexts. It's okay. not that you have people who are Imbira Zavadzimu players who are commercial versus Imbira Zavadzimu players who play in ceremonies. Okay. It's often the same people playing in different contexts. Often the same women who are playing in ceremonies are also gigging on the weekends in Harare to try to get extra income. Okay. There really isn't another way. Okay. to be a, a really competent, talented, virtuosic Mbira artist outside of playing in the ceremonies. Because people who play in ceremonies play all night long. So you that is how you become a good Mbira player. That's how you get the sort of rhythmic precision, mm -hmm. the ability to sustain the very fast patterns that you're playing with your two thumbs and index finger over mm -hmm. a long time, mm -hmm. the way you figure out how you could improvise or vary or introduce high lines. Mm. It's not something you can sit down and practice. It's really something you have to pick up in the context of performance because mm. it's mostly about flow and interaction between different parts in an ensemble mm. or your two hands operating on the three registers of the instrument. Mm -hmm. So really talented Imbira players see playing in ceremonies as the key to becoming a great Imbira artist. That's fascinating. Now, in talking about your work in my seminar, my students and I were really curious about your research process. Could you say a bit more about that? So for example, how did you first identify your research participants? 
I knew them already. They were people I had studied dance with, or mm -hmm. I had been to ceremonies with, people mm -hmm. I had met through friends, people mm -hmm. I had spent a lot of time with. I think it would be quite hard to just walk in and and say to people you don't know, mm -hmm. tell me about how menstruation taboos affect your participation as a woman mm -hmm. in piano player. Mm -hmm. Now, <laughs> some of your research participants you've interviewed multiple times. Do you find that later interviews differ from earlier interviews because now you have a more, even more established relationship with these people? It's hard to say because mm -hmm. I interview people so much. Mm. I just really love getting people to tell stories. Mm -hmm. And so this is why this uh, article, Learning in Secret, was so great. Because I said to women, what I wanted to get at was how women navigate menstruation taboos. Mm -hmm. But I wasn't going to start with that question. Yeah. So instead, I said, how did you start learning to play Ambira? Mm. And after that one question, the next thing in most of my transcriptions of my interviews is three or four pages of single-spaced text of women telling their stories about how they learned to play Mbira with little or no follow-up questions from me. Mm. These are stories that people really want to tell, mm. that are very richly detailed, that open up a world of ceremonial performance that otherwise might remain sort of hidden to us in terms mm. of the details of how people get involved. Mm -hmm. So I really try to open up space for people to tell stories mm -hmm. as much as possible mm -hmm. and cast a wide net without necessarily knowing what I'm going to get or what I'm going to do with that material mm -hmm. later. Mm -hmm. At the time I was interviewing women in 2002 and 2003, I had no plans to write about women in Bira artists. This was not my research project. Mm. It was just something that came up that was mm -hmm. really interesting to me as a female Ibira artist. Mm -hmm. And so it took me 10 years to figure out what I wanted to say or what I even could say mm -hmm. out of these interviews. What is the interesting thing mm -hmm. that we should know about women's experiences? Mm -hmm. And over time, I started to see that the interesting thing is that women say, I, I was forbidden to learn Ibira because I was a woman. And if we take that at face value, it seems like there are really gendered barriers to women's right. participation. But as soon as you start to look at male stories of learning to play Mbira, where men say, I was prohibited from learning Mbira because I was too young, mm -hmm. then you have a really interesting question, which is, why are people almost universally being prohibited from learning to play Mbira, but the explanatory paradigms are a little bit different? What does this mean about age and gender and how people actually become Mbira players. So let's follow up on that. What, why are people being prohibited from learning how to play Mbira? Well, in a lot of cases, it's because the Mbira is dedicated to an ancestral spirit. Mm -hmm. So there might be an Mbira hanging on the wall in your house, mm -hmm. but it's your father's mm -hmm. and it's dedicated to an ancestral spirit. So mm -hmm. it's not a toy. It's not something you're allowed to play with. It's not something that you're allowed to touch. And similarly, ceremonies are not places for children. Children mm -hmm. are not allowed to participate in ceremonies. And often at ceremonies, there will be separate spheres for young people and old people, if young people are integrated in the ceremony at all, mm. not at spirit possession ceremonies, but at other kinds of ceremonies, they will be outside drumming and dancing while older people are inside playing in mm. and doing the serious ritual work of the ceremony. Mm -hmm. 
So it's not considered to be appropriate for young people to really be involved in this context. Mm -hmm. Young people have to Mm self-select, right? And the idea behind that is that the people who are really driven by, I would say, by the ancestors to Mm. play are the ones who end up playing, the ones who cannot not play in Viera. Are the they only can't ones. be stopped. Right. Yeah, no matter what right. the prohibitions are, they'll continue to knock at the door. So over and over again, you hear people talk about stealing ambiras. Mm-hmm. That's how people learn to play ambiras is by stealing. And mm-hmm. they use that word, Cuba, stealing. I was, My father would go to the fields and I would stay home and steal his ambira and try to play the songs that were ringing in my ears. Mm-hmm. So this is the other, the, the other words that recur is that Imbira was sort of ringing in people's ears. Mm-hmm. And the only thing they could do is steal the Imbira and try to play the song that's ringing in their ears. Yeah, I have to say my favorite story in Learning in Secret is the girl who would go to her sister's house and play her brother-in-law's Imbira while he was gone. And and that was her way, her way of learning and that he would surreptitiously come back to hear because his neighbors had told him, we are hearing Imbira music coming from your house when you're gone. And uh, and he and he catches her red-handed, you know, playing playing his embira, and I, it's just fascinating to think of the lengths that people would go to, right, to um, to play music. So this is the interesting thing: is that as soon as you're caught, mm-hmm. people say, "You're doing what? Okay, okay, play me something." Mm-hmm. And once you play them a song, then it's completely accepted. You are completely accepted as an embira player at that moment. They buy you an instrument. They start taking you to ceremonies two right, weeks now you're later. Serious. Yeah. So it goes from you're utterly prohibited from touching the instrument to you're playing in ceremonies two weeks after people discover that you can play one song. Right. Right. It's not that people don't want kids to play. Right. But it's that children who are not really, really ambiera players are not allowed to touch ambieras. Mm. So you have to be an ambiera player before you're allowed to be an imbira. Usually at the end of the interview, we ask people about books they've read recently that they would recommend. But since I have um, an ethnomusicologist who's also a musician, I wonder if there's anything you're listening to um, that's maybe come out recently or um, or a classic that you would recommend our listeners you know, try to find on iTunes or, or wherever they get their music. I think one of the really interesting things happening right now is music in the context of the recent political transition in Zimbabwe. Mm-hmm. So I think people should go out and listen to some of the music that has spoken to Zimbabweans right now during mm-hmm. this moment. And one of those songs is really interesting. Mm-hmm. It is a song written by a Zimbabwean musician who recently passed away within the last few years, Mm. but was active during the Liberation War and well into the post-colonial period. Mm -hmm. His name is Comrade Chinks. Uh, I believe his his name before the Liberation War was Dixon Chingaira. Mm -hmm. So Comrade Chinks is his Liberation War name. Mm. And Comrade Chinks was very active in leading the ZANU Liberation Choirs mm. right, during the Liberation War and then transitioned into a career as a popular musician. Mm-hmm. So he has a song called Nzira Zemasoja, which is up on YouTube. And Nzira Zemasoja means the path of soldiers. Mm-hmm. And it is based in Mao's 
principles for what moral military conduct should look like. Hmm. And during the political transition in Zimbabwe, once the radio station um, was was doing something different than just reiterating Robert Mugabe's p- party line. Mm-hmm. What they did is start playing music mm-hmm. and start rebroadcasting songs from the Liberation War as a way of tying this moment of political transition mm. back to a larger history of mm-hmm. Black people's struggles for liberation. Mm-hmm. And Nzira Zemasoja is one of the songs that they played repeatedly mm-hmm. during this moment. Well, thanks for that recommendation, and thanks for your time today. I really appreciate it. Of course. Thank you. That's all for this week. Find us online and tell us what you're reading and learning about the continent. Don't forget to share your thoughts with us on Twitter at Ufahamu Africa. You can listen to Ufahamu Africa on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or on our website, ufahamuafrica.com. Ufahamu Africa is a production created by Kenya Dion and currently sponsored by the Program of African Studies and the Department of Political Science at Northwestern University in collaboration with the Department of Political Science at the University of California, Riverside. Kara Stevick, Medill School of Journalism, Class of 2019, is Ufahamu Africa's research and production assistant. Music is courtesy of Jennifer Kiker. Thanks for listening. Until next week, Safiri Salama.